We come this morning to our next sermon passage, and we're continuing on in the book of Exodus, uh, as we've been in Exodus since, the, Exodus since the beginning of the year. And this morning we'll be um, at the end of chapter 6, going into chapter 7. Um, uh, it's printed for you in your bulletin, 628 to 713, or you can pull it up on your phone or in your Bibles if you have them with you. The sermon's titled, Strength and Weakness, this morning. And to catch us up to speed before I read so we know what's going on, our passage is kind of like the calm before the storm. So you think Exodus, you think Moses, Pharaoh, you tend to think what? Ten plagues. You know, river turning to blood and boils and frogs and all the wild pictures into your brain. Well, our passage here is immediately before all of that starts. And so this is kind of, like I said, the, the calm before the storm. And what's happened is Moses has been called by God to be his representative, to come and demand freedom for the Israelites who had been enslaved by the Egyptians. But Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, resists. Freeing the Israelites for him is something that cannot even be considered. The wealth of Egypt was built on the back of their slave labor, and it would simply cost too much. And at least here, where we find ourselves in our passage this morning, it looks like Moses and his right-hand man, his brother Aaron, it looks like they've actually failed in their mission. Because they've come before Pharaoh and they demanded freedom and it absolutely didn't happen. In fact, things got worse. Pharaoh responds to the demands for freedom by making the work of the Israelites even harder. By accusing them of laziness and by demanding even more. And so that gets us up to where we are today, Exodus chapter 6, 28, verses through, chap uh, through uh, chapter 7, verses 13. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I stretch my hand out against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle. Then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, even when it's confusing, challenging, uh, or seems out of the ordinary. I thank you that this is the instrument that you use, your word revealed, to show us who you are and what you're about. And so this morning, as we meditate on this passage, and we reflect on what it says to us, I pray that you move by your spirit to show us the beauty of Jesus, that we would love him all the more, 
and change us, Lord, to be more and more like him. And we pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm going to say something non-controversial, something that I think everyone will agree with. It's a rare thing in this world, and it's this. Life can be difficult. Life can be difficult. So much of our experience in life is a struggle. Now, a few years ago, I read a helpful book that spoke about the struggles we face in lives and where the sources of these struggles come from. And there's four W's. This is actually helpful for me to remember, so if you want to write this down, I've, I've found this very helpful. Four W's of the source of our struggles, and the first is wounds. That's how people have hurt us or ways that we've been sinned against, injustice in our world. So we struggle because there's wounds that have been inflicted on us. The second is wickedness. We struggle because we are selfish and we are sinful. That's a source of struggle. Another W is warfare. It's the Satan and the powers of darkness who actively work against God's plan for flourishing and thriving. That's a source of our struggle. And the fourth one is this, weakness. Weakness. That's our limitations. Not sins, but our limitations. That could be um, natural limitations, needing to rest, needing to sleep, can't go all the time. That could be limitations such as disabilities um, or whatever it might be. So wounds, wickedness, warfare, and weakness. The reality of our struggle in this life, more often than not, is far more complicated than we'd like to realize. We'd really like it to be one thing most of the time, because if it's one thing, we can figure it out and fix it. But most of the time, our struggles are a lot more complicated. Not all the struggles we face in life are because we've done something wrong. That's an incredibly crucial thing to realize. That's just a facet. Yes, sin exists, and yes, we often act in selfishness, but that's not the whole story. I'm responsible for my sins, of course, but I am not responsible for how I've been wounded and harmed by other people. I'm not. That's not on me. I'm not responsible for the devil who's actively working against God's purposes. That's not my fault. Those are all factors at play. I also appreciated this framework, not just because it helped me get a, my mind around my own struggles. I appreciated this framework because it gave me a bigger picture of the grace of Jesus and what he does. Here's what I mean. Jesus forgives sins. Praise God. If that's all he did, fantastic. Jesus forgives sins. He forgives me of sin. But he isn't just concerned about how I've personally wronged him or other people. Jesus is also intent to heal the wounds that I've received. He's intent to break the bonds of injustice that continue to inflict wounds on people. He's intent to defeat the powers of darkness at work in this world and to free us of their ongoing influence. It gives us a bigger picture of the grace of Jesus. Now, we see all those dynamics at play in the book of Exodus, but this morning I want to focus on the last W, weakness. Because it's one that pops up all over this passage, weakness. It's at play in our passage today in a way that I think can help us pause and reconsider our relationship to our weaknesses, what they are, how Jesus addresses them, and what it means for us to thrive in our lives in the here and now, even in the midst of weakness. So I'm breaking this up in a couple of different sections to help us get our mind around it. And the first one is this, God is not afraid of our weaknesses. God is not afraid of our weaknesses. 
Now, I want you to imagine this scenario. This might be the only time I ever ask you guys to consider this, but imagine you're God. That usually gets us in a lot of trouble. But for a moment, let's pause. Imagine you're God. Imagine your people are enslaved in Egypt, and you're going to lead them out. And you're going to pick the ideal human leader. And you're God, so you get to pick whoever you want. And you can give them anything that they might need. So who are you going to pick? Well, I'll tell you who I'd pick. I'd pick someone who is a compelling speaker. Someone inspiring, right? Someone who speaks and it captures people's hearts. So I'd pick a compelling speaker. I'd pick someone who is physically imposing. Someone tall that walk in, walks in and like commands a room. Somebody young and vibrant, full of energy. And I'd pick somebody with a lot of resources available to them. Probably somebody with the biggest army that could come in <laughs> and take Egypt out. I would pick someone that's a compelling speaker, someone physically imposing, and someone with incredible amount of resources available to them. But what does God do? God is free to do what he wants. Who does he pick to send in to free his people to be the human leader? Moses. Was Moses a compelling speaker? No. No. In fact, Moses had a speech impediment. He had some kind of physical disability. We don't know exactly what it was, if it was a stutter or, or what it may be. But as he says in verse 30, he calls it faltering lips. And that doesn't mean he's just a nervous speaker. He talked about it earlier in Exodus 4. Moses called it being slow of speech. This is not the compelling speaker that commands the attention of audiences. Physically imposing? Is Moses physically imposing? Well, maybe he was earlier in his life. But as it says right here in verse 7, Moses and Aaron are in their 80s. They're not busting into the court of Pharaoh and demanding a scene. These are old men with walking sticks hobbling into the court of Pharaoh. Not physically imposing. And they were from a group of people who had been on the absolute bottom rung of Egyptian society for generations. Resources? Well, they don't have anything to come in and try to leverage. Pharaoh to release the Israelites, or they, they can't buy them off. They don't have resources. They don't have armor. They don't have impressive weapons or chariots or armies. They walk into the, the court of the most powerful king the world had ever seen, and all they have in their hands are shepherds' sticks. This is profound weakness in our world. Now Moses seems at best to be insecure about all of this. He brings it up over and over again. And I get it. His weaknesses are on full display for everyone to see. He can't hide them away. And imagine, just uh, previous to God appearing to him, he was safe. He was far off from Egypt. He was a shepherd. He kind of lived a life where he had had his own Rhythm, But right now, he's going to walk into Pharaoh's court with all of his weaknesses on full display. He can't hide them. Guys, I hate my weaknesses. I, I hate knowing they're there. I hate when they're on display. I hate, I hate the thought that other people see them. And you probably do too. Um, but you know what? I'm afraid of my weaknesses, but God isn't afraid of my weaknesses. God isn't afraid of your weaknesses. God doesn't have a system of measurement like we do. 
where we only really value people if they have it all together or seem like they do, who only seem to display strengths. God doesn't have a value system where he only values those who are young, vibrant, and beautiful with endless resources. We know that in this passage because God calls Moses and it is not an accident. God called him to this when he did in part to show this, that God didn't need Moses to fit a list of requirements. God could have called Moses when he had all the power and wealth of Egypt at his disposal, when he was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, when he was a 40-year-old man. But he didn't. He didn't. God didn't need Moses to fit a list of requirements. If anything, God called him to this work as a demonstration to the Israelites of how God can and does work through weakness. You know, I think more often than not, that's exactly what God does in the church, particularly with leadership. God's not impressed with degrees and training. Those are great. I went to seminary and I loved it. It was great. God's not impressed with that. He's not impressed with a preacher's ability to communicate or use big words or with what they wear, uh, with their sneakers. If you've ever seen the preachers with sneakers Instagram, it's quite an afternoon rabbit trail killer. Anyway, um, God's not impressed with those things. Not at all. In fact, most of the time, pastors are called to lead as a special demonstration and an example of how God works through weakness. It's not that God looks out and he finds the person that has it the most altogether, who has the most strengths that they can leverage. In fact, I think that's part of my role in this church as the pastor. So you see me as me. You see me with all my limitations and my weaknesses. You see me and you are not impressed by me. But you see that God loves me and God works in me. And if he loves me and he can work through me, he can absolutely love and work through anyone. God is not afraid of my weaknesses. He's not afraid of yours. God is not afraid of our weaknesses. But it's not just that God's not afraid of our weaknesses. My second point is this, that God joins himself to weakness. God voluntarily joins himself to weakness. If we were trying to measure strength and power... God would transcend every measurement we could conceive of. He's all-powerful. He's self-sufficient. He needs no thing. God is powerful. But when God acts in this world to defeat the power of sin, when God enters into human history in a sense to make sure his creation is not handed over to futility, who does he side with? Who does God in his sovereign choice side with? Not the Egyptians with all their power and wealth. He sides with the powerless. God, entirely free to do whatever he wants, takes sides and he sides with the powerless and the oppressed here, the children of Abraham who are utterly unimpressive in every measurement of what matters in this world. God identifies and let's not pass over this too quickly. God identifies with weakness. That's his sovereign choice. What he does with his absolute freedom, he identifies with weakness. And in doing so, he creates a different kind of kingdom in our world. Not a kingdom like Egypt, a kingdom ruled over by strong, resourceful, impressive men. Not a kingdom that measures what matters in terms of weapons and gold. 
Our world knows those kinds of kingdoms. It's the kind of place we inhabit. It might look a lot different than Egypt. But those same, same values are at work. It's why we feel so profoundly afraid of our weaknesses. Because we live most of our life in kingdoms that have no place for weakness. No time to stop. No time to pause. No place for weakness. Kingdoms like that would never pick the elderly, the poor, the enslaved, or the disabled. But the kingdom of God? That's where the sovereign takes up the cause of the weak. Where the God of the universe in all his strength puts that strength to work for freedom and for flourishing. God joins himself to weak people, not ashamed to be known as their God. God, in a sense, descends into weakness. Descends into weakness, not just to be able to say he understands. It's not so that God can see some weakness up close. He's not like a, a zoologist uh, analyzing chimps to see and understand their ways. No, God enjoins, he joins himself to weakness. He descends into weakness and joins himself to his broken people to make them whole. He joins himself to weakness to make his people whole. And here in Exodus, he identifies with weakness, and in doing so, God exposes the false power of Pharaoh for what it is. He hardens Pharaoh's heart, meaning that he emboldens him in his supposed strength. In this world, we think that stone is strong, right? If we want to say something is strong, we say it's like a rock. Those old Chevy commercials when I was a kid. I was using the um, Bob Seger song, like a rock, strong as I could be. That's the supposed model an image of strength, and there's something to it, obviously. Stone is strong. But in Exodus, this stone heart, this hardened heart of Pharaoh, it's a profound weakness. It's his hardened heart that leads him to continue in disobedience. It is hardened heart is his judgment. That's his undoing. Because a stone heart cannot be moved. A stone heart does not beat. A stone heart doesn't have life. So the false strength of Pharaoh is exposed and overcome. Now notice the emphasis in all this. God says over and over in verses 1 through 5, who is at work? He is at work. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. God will multiply his signs and wonders. God will lay his hand on Egypt in judgment. And God will lead his people out. And he says that then the Egyptians will know something. They will know that he, the God of the Hebrews, that he, the God of the slaves, is the Lord. That the God of the slaves, not Pharaoh, not the gods of Egypt, He is the Lord. That He is ultimate. And that the strength of God that joins itself to weakness, the weaknesses of the overlooked and oppressed, is more powerful than the false strength of Pharaoh, which can only rest on its own power and resources. Now this thing that God does in Exodus isn't just this one time in Exodus. This is something God does over and over again. We see it in Scripture. We see it in our own lives. We see it in Christian history. But the most obvious example to me is Jesus. Think about it. When Jesus arrives into this world, the Son of God taking on flesh, He does not come into the halls of power. He's not born into the family of Caesar in Rome. He arrives as a poor, important, unimportant 
Um, backwoods man born to a young teenage mother in a far-flung small town the size of Spivey's Corner. And he arrives what? What does he do for a living? He's not a politician. He's not a philosopher. He's a carpenter. Blue-collar worker. Single man. Romantically alone. His whole life. When God arrives in the flesh, this is who he is. And when we read the Gospels, what do we see the picture of? We see Jesus as a man who struggled under sorrow. Who was often so profoundly tired that he had to flee <laughs> to what the New Testament calls lonely and desolate places to pray. He needed to get away. A man who wept in the face of grief and grew profoundly angry in the face of injustice. A man who was utterly unimpressive in the face of the supposed important people of this world. A man that the polit political and religious leaders in, in Jerusalem thought so little of that they thought that they could kill him and cover it up. A man whose weakness was exposed in his arrest, his betrayal, and his crucifixion. The cross is the greatest uh, example of God joining himself to weakness. Imagine God in the flesh hanging on a cross, beaten and bleeding. But it was in this man it was in this man, that is Colossians 1 says, the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. It was this man who is the revelation of who God is. It was this man in all his supposed weakness. He was God among us. And that crucifixion was not the end. For it was in that moment of weakness that the power of death was overcome. For no matter how the darkness might seem to overcome the light of Jesus, it could not. And bursting forth in resurrection comes the new life of God, His new creation that we are now joined to. One that we await to see in His final consummation and flourishing in the new heavens and new earth where all things are made new. But this new life that we have a foretaste of even now in this world even now, in the words of 2 Corinthians 4, as we are outwardly wasting away, yet being renewed inwardly day by day, God joins himself to weakness. And because of this, we can know that in our loneliness, in our lack of power, in our unimportance, that we are not missed. In our weakness, we are not overlooked or disdained. God has joined himself to weakness. He is not ashamed to be our God, and that leads me to what I think is my last section. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Or His strength is perfectly displayed, perfectly seen in weakness. So imagine again the scenario. Back to our passage. Pharaoh's all his splendor. He's got his head, uh, you know, the, the crown you see when we see pictures of, of art of Pharaoh. It looks like a cobra's hood. Imagine Pharaoh in the golden splendor of his throne room. And in walks in two elderly men from the lowest rung of the society, hobbling in on their sticks. In Egypt, like every kingdom in this world, has depended on spectacle. It talks about the magicians, the, the, the sorcerers that had secret arts, and they could impress people. They could do magic tricks, impress. And, 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 ooh, look at that. 
Egypt has depended on spectacle, on the appearance of strength. And so it seems like Pharaoh even mocks them as they come in. Yeah, you old men, perform a miracle. Show me something. Dazzle me. And Aaron throws down his staff. And it becomes a snake. Now I've mentioned this in a previous sermon. The, the serpent was the symbol, the symbol of Pharaoh. It's like America with an eagle. It was the symbol of Pharaoh, his emblem. And the changing of the staff into a serpent here is a profound statement. It, it, uh, Aaron didn't throw the staff down and it turned into a hippopotamus. Could have. That would have been cool. He turned it into a serpent on purpose. Um, to demonstrate God's power and control over even this great, strong symbol. It was a profound statement, but it was one that it looks like the pharaohs, uh, that his court officials could replicate, right? They were good at spectacle, like I said, supposed magic tricks. They had power. Yet the serpent made from this lowly shepherd's staff swallows the staffs of the Egyptian magicians. What we see here is all the greatest power of the Egyptians is overcome by the simple shepherd's staff of this man who had been a slave for 80 years. Right here, in a small form, Egypt is exposed. And as we keep going, Egypt will continue to be exposed. What we see here, I think, is God's, uh, the weakness of God, for lack of a better term, the weakness that he's joined himself to, turned into strength. God using this ordinary thing to show his power. Which I say that often. God uses very ordinary things to demonstrate his extraordinary grace. He does it over and over and over again. And Moses, the Israelites, and all who had eyes to faith, eyes of faith to see, discovered something that surely felt like a new thing in their world. Because it feels like a new thing in ours. That their weaknesses and their limitations were not liabilities to be hidden away, but their weaknesses were the very thing that was their strength. Their weaknesses was was their strength. As human beings were defined by limitation. And considering ourselves by ourselves, we, we are weak. Um, but that's because we were never meant to be considered by ourselves. You see, we ask ourselves and we ask other people to be strong in ways we were never intended or made to be strong. We were created for God. And for his abundant life to be our sustenance and our strength. We were made to lean on him. We were never designed to try and do it all. Try to shoulder all the burdens, to cover all the bases. You can't do it all. You know that. I can't do it all. You can't and you shouldn't try. We can't always do our best. It's literally impossible. We were made to lean upon him. He is our creator and we are his creations. In just the same way that a painting was never meant to paint itself, a sculpture was never meant to chisel itself out of stone, we were never meant to try and make ourselves. We weren't. It's part of who we are that we are supposed to lean on him. And the good news of that is that leaning upon him means this. We, found, we find a foundation that will never give way. We find access to a well that will never run dry. We find spiritual food that can satisfy our hunger. 
You know, Moses and Aaron here, they were allowed to see that. It's a lesson they had to keep learning over and over again. But what we see is that their weakness, their disability, their age, their lack of resources was actually their strength because it meant that they didn't need to pretend that they stood on their own two feet in front of Pharaoh. They did not have to pretend. You know, I heard a story recently. Uh, you know, if you know anything about uh, requirements for being a pilot, um, you know, colorblind people can't become pilots. It's a disability that bars you just out of the gate. If you, if you Trying to be a pilot and find out you're colorblind, you can't do it. Well, that was true in World War II. And so this big call went out for people to volunteer as soon as uh, the U.S. entered the war effort. And, uh, but all these people who were trying to become pilots, they suddenly couldn't. They were colorblind. But you know what they discovered? They discovered colorblind people whose weakness had kept them from being pilots. If they were in the planes... Colorblind people could see past the camouflage of the enemy. The American pilots who would fly over, they would have navigators that were colorblind, and they could look down and they could see past the camouflage that fooled everybody else, and they could spot the, the German encampments, the enemy encampments. They could see through the camouflage. In other words, their weakness became the profound strength. Their weakness became the thing that allowed them to see what no one else could see. Their weakness became a strength that would not have happened otherwise. It was their weakness that became their strength. Their weakness allowed them to see through the lies of the camouflage. Friends, what if our weaknesses this morning... I'm going to throw this out there, and I don't do this flippantly. What if our weaknesses were our secret strength? Now, I'm not talking about wound, com, coming back to the W's at the beginning. I'm not talking about wounds. I'm not talking about warfare. I'm not talking about wickedness. I'm also not talking about thanking God for our weaknesses, especially uh, disabilities and pain. Those are not good things. I'm not saying call them good things. But this is what I mean. I believe that our weaknesses can be profound places for God to show the immeasurable riches of His grace. And I believe that in some ways we short-circuit the grace of God being clearly seen when we try to hide away our weaknesses. And that means we can give up our ideas of what strength is and we can lean on Him. We can stop pretending. We can stop trying to repent of our limitations. By the way, stop repenting of your weaknesses. They are not sins <laughs> to be repented of. I think the Apostle Paul saw this. Think about, when I think about the Apostle Paul, I tend to think of a fearless leader who planted churches across the Roman Empire, human author of 13 books of Scripture, right? But if you take a closer look at his writings, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a man who is sometimes eat up with anxiety about the well-being of his friends. He writes about it. He is eat up with anxiety about the well-being of his friends. It shows a man who was a profoundly unimpressive speaker to the point that if you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, he had a whole big mess to clean up because there were other speakers that were far more impressive than him that people started listening to. It shows a man with physical disabilities and a man who, for most of his ministry, lived on the generosity of other people. That's who the Apostle Paul was. And if it was true, 
and it is that God worked through the weakness of Moses and Aaron. And if it's true that God worked through the weakness of Paul and countless men and women and their weaknesses, then we have to stop and pay attention because I think it's telling us this, that we can stop trying to cover up our weaknesses. We can stop trying to hide, hide them away ashamed. We can stop valuing ourselves and others by what we supposedly bring to the table. And to know that God will most likely work far more profoundly through our weaknesses than through our supposed strengths. Think about our church. Think about this. We, you know, uh, we started meeting together. Goodness, fall 2019. Having dinners at my house. And guys, I had plans. I had been thinking about this church plant since 2009. I had drawn up, I think, four different prospectus, like the detailed plans and timelines and all the things. I had all kinds of plans. We were going to do the, the elaborate ministry teams and all this thing. And then what? A pandemic, something you can't plan for. And then we did what? We launched service in my front yard. That is, that is weird, y'all. That is strange. And then we had to navigate. I had to become a weatherman. We had to navigate weather forecasts and COVID restrictions, and we couldn't gather like we wanted to. And all of a sudden, the only thing it felt like to me that was on display for us and our young church were our limitations. It's the only thing that was there. And when you talk to people in Christchurch, where do you, where's your church? <laughs> in my mind, I guess. The only thing that's on display was our weakness. But what have we seen? We moved into this building, into this indoor space last Easter. And this is what we've seen. We've seen our young church, with none of our plans going the way they're supposed to, at least in my mind. We've seen our young church be a refuge of welcome. We've seen our young, our young church become a place where we can come and not find more stuff to do or more programs to fill up our calendars. But we've seen us become a growing community of rest. A place where Jesus is the main thing. And where we learn together that we are broken people that are learning to be loved by Jesus. That's what we've seen. A place where we rest in the grace of Jesus and we don't pretend to have it all together. So if you walk in today, it still feels maybe, at least for some people, that the weakness, our weaknesses might be on full display but the truth is, in our weakness, Jesus is seen all the more clearly, which is wonderful. Because our hope isn't in me as a pastor or a visionary leader or whatever. I'm actually not a visionary leader. It's not in the space we meet. It's not in the numbers or, that we have. Our hope always, always is Jesus. And our hope was always going to be Jesus. It's just more clear now. Now, with that in mind, I want to close this morning reflecting on the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, we find the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest extended teaching section that Jesus has in Matthew 5 through 7. And he begins this teaching set, section with pronouncing uh, blessed are. You guys have heard maybe these called the Beatitudes or happy are. And he lists a number of people, a number of different types of people. And what does he say? Does he say, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the self-sufficient, blessed are the people that never limp, that never struggle? No, this is what he says. These are the people 
that Jesus Christ pronounces a blessing upon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek or the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, those that desire one thing. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that are persecuted. That's who the Lord Jesus pronounces a blessing on. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger for th and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the weak. The weak who depend on God and find His strength theirs. Friends, may we add our amen to Jesus' words. And may we never call blessed something that he hasn't called blessed. May we depend on him and not be afraid of our weaknesses because he's not. Not be ashamed of our weaknesses because he's not. But may we glory that his grace is so profoundly seen and we are carried along and sustained by something, his grace, that can never run out. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now as people who are weak. We are. And we don't like to admit it. We don't like to see it. We don't like to talk about it. it makes, it's making me uncomfortable right now. But God, I pray that you would give us insight to see how you interact and how you treat our weaknesses. And teach us, God, Teach us what it means to walk through life not pretending, not hiding, not ashamed, but walking in the freedom of those who are dearly delighted in and loved. And Lord, for those weaknesses that, uh, that, that trouble us, disabilities of various types, I pray that you give us hope in the here and now. Help us to look to you and to see that even our disabilities have an end date because you are making all things new. Sustain us as we wait and comfort us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.